Thank you for downloading a sermon from the Chapel of the Cross. The Chapel of the Cross is a welcoming, growing, and historic Episcopal Church in Madison, Mississippi. I hope you will join us on Sundays for worship at 7.30 a.m., 8.45 a.m., 11 a.m., and 5 p.m., with Sunday school for all ages at 10 a.m. I also invite you to connect with the chapel online at chapelofthecrossms.org. Again, thank you for downloading this sermon. We pray it will enrich your walk with Christ. God bless you, and we look forward to welcoming you and your family to the Chapel of the Cross. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. I speak to you in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may recall that last Sunday's gospel lesson was about doubting Thomas. Jesus appears among the disciples, but Thomas is not with them at the time. And so when they tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord, he says, I'm going to need further proof. I'm going to need to see him for myself, see him with my own eyes. Unless I am able to touch the mark of the nails in his hands and place my hand in his side where the spear pierced him, I will not believe. Lost in that well-known story, because we tend to focus all of our attention on Thomas's doubts, lost in that well-known story, <clears throat> is the fact that Jesus, when he first appeared among the disciples, he says to them, peace be with you, and he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Breath is used throughout the whole of the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as powerful imagery and as a symbol for life. In the creation, when God was creating humankind, he breathed life into Adam. God breathed life into the dry bones in Ezekiel's vision of the valley of the dry bones. And throughout the Gospels, we read about Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit upon the disciples giving them life. God breathes life into us. God breathes his Holy Spirit into us at our baptism and gives us life. God will do the same thing today at the 11 o'clock service when he breathes life into John Baker and gives him his Holy Spirit at his baptism. So I have often wondered what does a breath of God smell like? That is something that has often occurred to me and as recently as last week with our gospel lesson when it said that Jesus 
breathed the Holy Spirit on the disciples. What does the breath of God smell like? It's got to smell good, right? I mean, it's, it is the breath of God. So does it smell like a flower, perhaps as sweet as a rose? And maybe it is uh, a little sour. Does it smell like anything we can imagine? Or does it smell like something familiar and well-known to us? What does the breath of God smell like? Well, now I think I know. Messiah mints. Messiah mints. A parishioner gave me these mints this past week. And they're Messiah mints. It's got a picture of Jesus with his arms outstretched and he is holding one of these mints. And it says on the front, on the label, it says, save your breath. At the 730 service, after I preached, I put these mints down and I noticed on the back side of the label, it says they're sacrilegious. <laughs> so perhaps the breath of God uh, smells minty fresh. Perhaps the breath of God uh, smelled like spearmint, Messiah mints. Another thing that is lost in the story of Doubting Thomas from last week is how that gospel lesson ended. And I will refresh your memory, I will jog your memory, and I'll read to you how it ended. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. That's a pretty good ending. Not just for our gospel lesson last week, but that's a pretty good ending for the whole gospel of John. The writer of John uses 20 chapters to tell us about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of Chapter 20, at the end of our gospel lesson last week, he seemingly puts a nice little bow on everything. He says, I have told you these things so that you may go and tell the world what I have told you. That Jesus Christ has been crucified and risen from the dead and that through believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's a pretty good ending for any story. And so you think that's it. There's nothing more. And so you, you turn the page and you move on to start reading the book of Acts. But then today we get this chapter 21. So the story is not quite finished. But in fact, biblical scholars think that there is a different writer of our gospel lesson today. They think that there was a different writer who wrote the 21st chapter of John and that it was later added to the gospel so that there are so that the writer of chapter 21 is different from the writer of the first 20 chapters of the book of John. And so today we get a story. We get a, a fishing story. Everyone loves a good fishing story, right? And this one does not disappoint. So we we find the disciples they're back in Galilee after Christ appeared to them. 
They're back in Galilee, and they're back doing what they were doing before Christ called them to be his disciples. They are fisher folk by trade. And that is what we find them doing in this gospel lesson. Peter says to the rest of the disciples, I'm going fishing. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So they hop in the boat, and all night they catch nothing. Nada. Zilch. Nothing to show for their work all night. Until daybreak. Until just after daybreak when a stranger appears and says to them, have you tried the right side of the boat? You know, I laugh when I when I read this because I think of the disciples, I guess all night they have been throwing the net over the left side of the boat with nothing to show for it. And so here comes this stranger on the shore who tells them, well, why don't you fish in a different spot? And so they do. They cast their net on the right side and they bring in a huge haul, a whole slew of fish. We are told 153 fish. That's a lot of counting. That's a lot of counting. Obviously, someone stayed behind to count the huge haul that they brought in. And so the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is always called the disciple whom Jesus loved, never referred to by any sort of name, he recognizes this stranger, this person on the shore. And he says out loud, it is the Lord. And Simon Peter gets dressed and jumps in the sea and swims to the shore. The rest of the disciples figure, you know, we've got a boat, we'll just row to the shore. But Simon Peter, the man of action, jumps in and swims to the shore. And apparently Jesus had been doing some fishing himself and was more successful than the disciples because he already had some fish cooking over the fire. And so he invites the disciples to breakfast, which is a very nice gesture. I'm sure that they were famished and quite tired after uh, catching nothing all night. And so it is over breakfast that Jesus asked Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And three times Peter answers Jesus and affirms his love for his Lord. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. And so Jesus gives him a command, gives him a charge, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Three times Peter is asked, do you love me? And three times Peter affirms his love for Jesus. Many biblical scholars posit that perhaps this is the restoration of Peter. This is bringing Peter back into the fold. Because notice Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And that mirrors that threefold denial in Jesus' passion when Peter said, I do not know who this man is is. So many scholars think that this is repairing Peter, restoring Peter back into the fold. But after Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter affirms, yes, indeed, I do love you, Lord. What happens next is striking. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. In order to follow Jesus, we must love. You cannot follow Jesus. You cannot be a Christ follower and not love. You have to love yourself. You have to love that poor, wretched sinner, that person who falls short time and time again. You have to love yourself because God created you 
and God loves you, then you also have to love your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Well, it's the person who looks differently from you, who dresses differently than you, votes differently than you, speaks differently than you, believes and worships differently than you. It is the person who cuts you off as you're making a left-hand turn out of your neighborhood onto 463 this week. That is your neighbor. There are no parentheses. There are no asterisks. Everyone is our neighbor, and we are called to love everyone in order to follow Jesus. Christians, I think, are pretty good believers in Jesus. We'll stand up in a red-hot minute and say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I, I don't think we're very good Jesus followers. As for me and all of you here in this room, I would much rather you follow Jesus than merely believe in Jesus because following Jesus demands a belief. As we are called to be Christians, we are called to go out. We are not called to stay in this place, but we are called to go out into a broken and a healing world. We are called to follow Christ out of this, this building and into a world that is broken and hurting and needs to know that there is a God, that there is a Christ who loves them just as they are and who deigns to be in relationship with them. The world needs us. The world needs you. The world needs your love. The world needs to hear about the love of God. So let us go from this place, nourished by Christ himself in the Eucharist, let us go from these, this place out into that broken and hurting world. And for the love of God, let's go and love God's people. Amen.